Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, hey, this is the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, hey, bestie, hope you're having an amazing day. You look amazing today. See what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So pretty much a no-brainer to hit that subscribe button and join us as we change the world by making our workplaces better. I am here with uh, Zoe Chance. I am uh, pretty excited about today's interview. She is the um, author of the international bestseller, uh, Influence is Your Superpower. She is a professor at Yale, and um, I love this book. So this is part of the uh, Ethico library that we give away books for. We just went to a conference. They went like hotcakes. Um, I don't know if it's because I sold it so hard or if it's because uh, that cover looks so cool or maybe everybody just knows you, but i um, super excited to get you on the ethics experts today. How's it going? Great. I'm really excited to be here and to get to meet you. So let's just dive in. What is it about? Um, why did you write this book? Maybe that's, that's my first question. I grew up in the world of influence doing transactional sales and marketing. I worked in jobs like telemarketing and door-to-door sales and then and then consumer marketing and big brands like Barbie for Mattel. And everything that I was being taught about influence was uh, how to get things from people, mm-hmm. especially money. And sure, we all want to do deals, but I felt like I was powerless when it came to influencing most of the people I knew and worked with, my colleagues or senior colleagues or even family, friends, definitely my daughter is very hard to influence. So I've been on this journey of trying to understand and then share, how can we influence other people in ways that don't feel creepy, where they actually will continue to like us and want to say yes to us now and in the future? Yeah, I think influence gets this really bad rap and people think it's like so manipulative. I mean, I, I kind of have a similar thing. I've, I remember my parents were salespeople and I remember driving around in our old Ford Taurus back in the 90s uh, listening to Zig Ziglar tapes. Okay, so um, and then did door-to-door sales of um, satellite dishes and uh, everything else. And the thing that I was always met with and the thing that, you know, my parents in their business, which was really a sales organization, what they were always trying to like up, upend in the people that we were, we were bringing on is that this is not manipulation in the sense of something like nefarious. Uh, proper influence can be done in a way that uh, is a win-win. It's not necessarily taking advantage of people. But I just wonder from your standpoint, why do you think influence gets such a bad name? And why do people like misuse this thing that, as you said in your book, is like one of the first things that we figure out? Right. Influence ultimately is power. And you could think of it like electricity, where you could use power to turn on the lights in a school. You could use power to execute someone in an electric chair. There's nothing that's inherently good or bad about it. But power-hungry people will always study and practice any tools of influence that they can get their hands on. And then we've all had plenty of interactions with people who, like you said, are manipulative. They're creepy, they're obnoxious, they're annoying, they're very selfish, self-centered. And those interactions are really memorable. So we think, you know, I don't want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like that woman. But influence doesn't have to be like that. Um, it's, It's just been, I think... Getting a bad rap, 
even more than it actually deserves. So I'm trying to change that. So what was it? Um, so, you know, you're clearly fascinated by it in these different experiences. I'd love to kind of dive into um, how you saw that influ- the approach to influence change from that door-to-door experience you had or the telemarketing experience to kind of being in a big brand working for Barbie and sort of this broad corporate environment where you're maybe several steps removed from the ultimate decision maker. You know, um, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm about to share this because you're in the field of compliance and ethics, but what was really disappointing was that while I had been taught to tell lies in my very low level influence jobs doing door to door sales and telemarketing, I'd been taught to tell lies as a telemarketer. I'd been taught to tell lies as a door to door salesperson and I had done it. And then I went to work in bigger companies and I got to Mattel and we were having weekly meetings before we would talk to our partner where we would conspire about the lies that we were going to tell on the call. And the biggest lie that I was asked to tell was a $20 million lie. And I was asked by my, I don't know, boss's 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 boss Mm -hmm to present a marketing plan that we had no intention of following through with. And it was a $20 million marketing plan. And, and I, I just couldn't do it. And in, in these presentations, we're talking recording in progress. We're talking to CEOs of major companies who buy toys. And I just, it, it wasn't that I was so good that I wasn't willing to do it. It was that I literally couldn't do it. And when I thought about it, my throat just closed up and I knew I couldn't even say it. And, and then this guy says, and in this avuncular way, he puts his arm around me. He, he and I had gone to the same school. And so he saw me as like his little protege. He puts his arm around me and he's like, Oh, that's so cute. You're new to this business. He's like, listen, it can't be a lie if it hasn't happened yet. And he just believed that you, that any plan that you said that you had couldn't be a lie because theoretically in some future things could happen to make that thing true. Um, so I don't, I'm not saying that this is how corporations and big businesses are. And I'm definitely not saying that this is how Mattel is. They actually cleaned house and fired most of the senior management during that time period. But, uh, we find a lot of, but a lot of dishonesty in many, many organizations, big and small, who are trying to influence people. And, you know, when stakes are high, people do some dirty stuff. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. I mean, what a crazy story. Um, and it's interesting that he, that, that he really kind of like laid bare his mechanism for rationalizing it. He's like, well, it hasn't happened yet. So... Right. You don't need to get caught up in that. I mean, that's, that's right. pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> right. The idea yeah. was if you pretend that this thing is going to happen, then other people may believe you and then they may buy enough of your toys that actually then it should happen. Like it could become this self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Who knows? It may happen. We may, <laughs> you know, we may end up going through with it. But, you know, you said something earlier about like influence is power. Um, and I just wonder, like, do you think is, 
I'm just like navel gazing at this point, but like, do you think it's, you know, that the stakes are so high that that's what causes people to do it? Or do you think it's like people who are better at it and they've sort of touched, you know, they've like, they're like more well-versed in the dark arts of persuasion. It, they like get corrupted by it because they can like influence the world in ways that the average person can't. And that's what causes them to push those things forward. Do you think it's idiosyncratic to the person? I mean, what do you think is behind that? Because to your point, it's just power. It's just electricity. It's not, it's not necessarily bad. I've wondered a lot about people who I see as being on the dark side and wondering when you look around and see a lot of people in power, kind of mm -hmm. in that dark side, practicing dark arts, did they have the seed of darkness within them that right. was ready to blossom or were they like... Luke Skywalker and you feel the battle with the dark side of the force and then maybe you succumb, but it's not that there was something wrong with you in the beginning. And what I mostly believe is that we, we tend to attribute good and bad actions to people's character where it's much more often a result of the situation and the context you're in. So in the context of the Mattel situation, what was going on at the time that I was there was it, this was during the dot-com bubble bursting mm. and Mattel had gone from having 90% of the market in the Barbie business to 30% within a oh, year wow. or two because of a huge competitor that had come on. And, public companies and every company was struggling. So what happened was individual human beings who had been counting on the bonuses that they had been getting in the past, not right. just in a hopeful way, but in mortgage commitments that they right. made, private school tuition commitments that they made, right. had, were under a lot of pressure to try to increase the business in whatever way they possibly could. So I don't see them as bad people. I see them as people who did bad things when they were put in a very difficult situation. Yeah. How many of us would steal a loaf of bread for our family when we're starving or something? I mean, it's, uh, that's a bit of a dramatic. Example. Yeah. I mean, they like, weren't starving. Kind of They're executives, but, but, but yeah, when you think about losing your house or having to the shame of having to take your kid out of the school that they love, it's real human problems. Yeah. We all may be Robespierre or something at the end of the day. Um, talk to me a little about how you, I'd love to kind of back up and go from like a young Zoe, how you ended up where you're at now, because it's a very interesting path. I imagine it's had some interesting twists and, and turns, and now you're doing kind of some really cool things in a realm that I'm just wildly fascinated with. So I'd love your kind of origin story. When I was growing up, I grew up with a single mom and we were I was going to say relatively poor. We were poor, below the poverty line. But it was white-collar poor, not blue-collar poor, which made a lot of difference. And we were living in a very affluent town. So my mom moved us to where we could go to great schools. So my friends had like jaguars and swimming pools and second homes and all of those kinds of things. While my sister and I are sharing the bedroom in our one bedroom apartment and my mom sleeps on the futon in the living room. Yep. And I was, I was very conscious of, um, being someone like, I felt like someone who didn't belong and I was very quiet and very shy. I was a huge nerd. And, um, I, uh, 
nerdy theory that I had was that the reason people didn't even seem to hear what I was saying when I would speak is that my voice must be the same frequency as the ambient sounds of the universe. So that just gives you an idea of like, of course I didn't have friends, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like kids with that. No one could hear you. Yeah. Like I, well, I, yeah, I didn't speak above a whisper and also some child who's thinking this way is just not going to have a whole lot of friends. Um, so I, I really wanted to understand how to relate to people and how to be heard. And so I got into theater and then because of that interest and also because of needing money, I got into sales and just in a very hands-on, practical, visceral, artistic and economic way was learning the arts of influence and then started businesses, failed, enjoyed them came to my MBA program. And I wanted to understand when I was at Mattel, why was I so uninfluential with people like senior managers and my colleagues? And I'm sorry to say I found the compliance officer on our team, someone really annoying and difficult to influence, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was probably good, right? Well, that part was probably good. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, Go ahead. yeah. I mean, maybe that's good. Uh, that's a whole thing I want to get into. So okay. I, yeah. I mean to interrupt. Let's hold going. that. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I found even customers were very difficult to influence and hard to predict, even though I'm running this $200 million segment of the biggest girls brand in the world. And we keep being surprised. <laughs> and so I came back to school. I studied behavioral economics, which is really psychology right. and MIT and then Harvard. And I've been teaching at Yale for the past decade. And the course that I teach which is relevant to all of this work and the research that I do is called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. It's the most popular course here at the School of Management. And it's really about how can we use influence to build healthy relationships and do good things in the world while taking care of ourselves. So we will do things like fundraising and lots of volunteering and all kinds of good stuff. And we will be getting investments for startups and negotiation, negotiating raises and promotions and things like this. So I believe we really need to take care of ourselves and other people and think big when it comes to influence, not just looking at, you know, how can I put food on the table? How can I take care of my team? But what could my organization be like if we were dreaming even bigger and doing things that were even better? And how could I even, I've had some students, multiple students who are changing and have been changing the course of history through some of the tools that we talk about. Like what? Tell me. Well, one of them is now the deputy minister of culture in Ukraine. Wow. And he and his team are behind the massive influence and persuasion effort that has had the world really? be focused on and invested in helping Ukraine in a way that no country has gotten help, even all of the countries previously invaded by Putin oh, and Russia. Got chills. I mean, imagine you had some influence in that. No pun intended. We were. I was planning a book launch event with this guy when the Ukrainian edition was supposed to launch a couple of months ago. And right before the invasion, we were putting this event together, and uh, it, it was it was heartbreaking yeah. to have been in contact with him where I'm watching the buildup and looking at the news and I'm worried for him. And he and the publishing team would totally separate entities, but they're 
they're feeling great. And like, like it doesn't seem like this thing is going to happen, but they're prepared in case it does. And um, it was vastly more fast, dramatic, destructive than what they anticipated, but um, they were ready for it. And it this is the greatest influence and persuasion campaign of my lifetime. It may have, maybe even in history. I mean, it is wild. Um, I mean, there's not a time in recorded history where there's been this kind of like, you know, rallying across the world for a, a, a single cause I, 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 that, that I can think of at least. So on the one hand, this like totally brought this conflict like right up to your face because you know this person and you're planning on doing things together. He was a student of yours. And so that like, that just makes it so much more real. You're not just watching a two dimensional thing. You know, the three dimensional people on the other side of the world. And it's gotta be kind of empowering, you know, at least standing on this side of it. I'm not saying that, it, that, it, that, that it wasn't a painful thing, but somewhat empowering to see that like you had some sort of role in this campaign. I mean, it's, that's really, uh, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, Taras, his name is Taras Shevchenko. And of course, he was tremendously talented and influential before I ever met him. Yeah. So I don't, he was super excited about my class and he loved it. And, you know, this is why we've kept in touch and everything. But I don't, I don't feel like taking credit for his greatness and the greatness of their team. I'm happy to know them, but partly because of knowing them, it did inspire me to be taking action myself in a lot of different ways. Cool. And one of those was when the, when the invasion first happened at the end of February, and this was three weeks after my book launch. So my book was published February 2nd, and then Russia invades Ukraine on February 25th. So I was deep in the middle of whatever mostly virtual book tour, and I took took a hiatus from the book tour stuff and took the weekend where my assistant and I reached out on Twitter to all of these journalists and media outlets who were covering Ukraine. And at the beginning of what was going on, the dominant frame that people were using to describe this was either conflict or situation. And when you hear that frame, it was the conflict in Ukraine or the situation in Ukraine. That's something that we hear all the time, not just about things going on all over the world. There's so many conflicts and an right. infinite number of situations. But like your parents can have a conflict, right? There's no one good, no one bad. You're, you can just sit back and watch and not worry about it. And right. so we were reaching out. And it's not just us. Many people, I'm sure, around the world, definitely including Euromaidan Press, who's the main main newspaper in Ukraine, mm -hmm. were doing this uh, at the same time saying, listen, thank you so much for covering this issue that I think is really important too. And I know that you want people to care about it. That's why you're writing about it. Consider that if you call it a conflict or if you call it a situation, you're actually making people care about it less. Right. What's happening here is an invasion Different by word. Russia of Different Ukraine. Mm -hmm. If you want to call it a war, this is a war on Ukraine, or this is a war against Ukraine. And we got 30 different media organizations and journalists specifically telling us from the outreach, thank you so much. From now on, we're not going to use that frame anymore. We're not going to call it a conflict. We will be ca calling it a, a war or an invasion. 
And the framing totally. that we did there is a, is a small piece of the kind of thing that was helpful, but the power of framing is tremendous. And for all, anyone listening, the, the words that you use to describe something determine how somebody, what somebody expects from it, but also how important they think it is, how much they think they should invest. And what Tadas and Zelensky and their whole team did even way more dramatically than we did about framing is they were able to shift the frame from a war on Ukraine to a war on Europe. And beyond that, this is a war on democracy. And they've done this so successfully that even across the ocean in the United States, many of us feel that it's appropriate for us to be involved to support democracy. Yeah, there's Ukrainian flags up all in my neighborhood still. Um, what a powerful thing and what an important point you just made that the way that we frame things matters. The words we use matter because there are feelings and there are emotions attached um, to those words. And it's just what a case study that is, that that one word change evokes such a different response uh, from just the average person listening to it versus the situation. I mean, the situation feels like, to your point, there's infinite situations. Everything's a situation. I had a traffic situation this morning or a school line situation. Today, <laughs> right, you know like, right. Uh, but in an invasion, there's a victim in there and there's a, uh, a disparity of power usually and there is um, you know, a cascading, there are cascading you know, layers of effects um, to something like that. Uh, wow. That's really, really, really fascinating. That was and way bigger than what I was expecting you to say. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is why I do the work that I do. This is why I'm so passionate about it, that it has, that when you understand influence, you really do have the power to change the world. And it can be so simple. And the investment of time in something like this can have tremendous dividends. 100%. It's, just to reach out so anybody, not just me, anyone on earth can be reaching out to individual journalists and media outlets in exactly the way that I did on whatever issue it is that you care about. The reason that this was effective, though, and a challenge that we have in a lot of other issues is that it was in this moment of truth where it's the beginning of something and there it hasn't been a frame that's locked in already. Right. I got so it. it's it, early it enough that fluid. it was still malleable or something. Yeah. So an, a, a different frame that I'm facing a huge uphill battle in trying to change is the name of my discipline. So oh, I come from a background of consumer marketing and my job at the Yale School of Management as I work on the marketing faculty in consumer behavior. Calling people consumers is toxic. It's horrible. It's disrespectful. Just completely stripping all agency from them. And I believe this has, I'm certain that this has been contributing to the climate crisis that we're in. Yeah. And, and I talk to other people who work in marketing and including people who run consumer agencies and people who run journals like the academic journal of consumer research who agree. It's not, I actually haven't, I don't think talked with anyone who really wanted to defend it. I got to share this perspective at the World Economic Forum at Davos earlier this year. Most people agree, but the frame of consumers is so 
deeply entrenched that it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort by a lot of people to shift that. So why is it so toxic in your mind, that word? And what are the implications of that across our world right now? When we call people consumers, we're acting like the only purpose that they have is to buy things and to eat things and to destroy things and to extract things and use things up and that that's okay, that that's what they should be doing and that that's all they're really worth. And we're even if we're just talking about a business context, we're treating human beings like wallets. And that's the least bad part of it, right? But we're also saying you should be buying and eating and extracting as much as possible. So we're driving this engine that we call growth, but it's really destruction. Yeah, it like ends up kind of creating this self-fulfilling prophecy where this moniker becomes an identity on like a subconscious level, you know? Right. Yeah. And we do that without thinking. I've done it for so many years without even thinking because it's just the phrase, the word, the term that we use. So what ideas do you have on that? I mean, we're just people. Mostly we don't need another word than people, but sometimes, you know, an organization will be talking about their customers and then their customers because that's the relationship to the organization. You're not saying that's, that's who they are. It's, you know, these are your customers or these are your suppliers or, you know, these are your collaborators. It's not disrespectful to call someone a customer. It's just disrespectful and toxic to call them a consumer as an identity. Yeah. What do you think about this? So I love this conversation because we're kind of facing a similar thing in our industry. Is there, you know, back to your, uh, your, your buddy at Mattel, I mean, that title, that branding essentially for compliance is very, uh, very not good. How's that? Um, yeah. The, the frame of compliance yeah, period. Yeah, yeah. Right. You must comply right. type of thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not, it, and it's not even a picture of the people that I know in that space, the people that are, you know, ethics and compliance officers, they're smart people. They care. They're the type of people that, you know, our servants, they want to make the world better. They want to leave the place better than they found it. That's the essence of it. They want, they want to enable the organization to not get in trouble. Uh, they want to provide clarity and, you know, but that label ends up creating a bunch of like that label kind of makes them start from like somewhere below, you know, sea level or something like they have to like dig themselves out of that to overcome. And part of it might be the permanence of it. And people have just had so many bad experiences like you had of, you know, this person being very obnoxious and not caring about anything other than the rules or uh, not explaining the why behind the what, whatever it is. They weren't obnoxious, just very rigid. And, and I can't even imagine having been a compliance officer at Mattel during the time that I was there. Gotcha. They must have had a horrible experience in their job. And they, you know, they were just doing whatever they could do to have things be a little bit less bad. Well, to your point, I mean, that's what a lot of sort of quote unquote bad behavior uh, is due to. It's due to some gap in our understanding or perception of what's going on. Um, and how our perception ends up filling that in with something negative and, you know, gracious of you to probably to, you know, see past that, what that person may have been doing. 
I think regardless, there is a branding problem for the industry and for a lot of the folks. I mean, it's, it's in human resources as well. Like when I thought, when I first heard about human resources, I was like, oh, cool. This is like a, a resource for the humans of the organization. And I think most people don't, don't trust HR. They think that it is a mechanism to control the human labor units, the human, you know, right. uh, resources that the company quote unquote owns. And that's a branding problem as well. So what do you think about that? Right. When, when you think about human resources, when you think about compliance, when you think about consumer marketing, these are not well-respected functions, right? Within, within our fields, you know, we admire and respect each other, but outside of our world, people on the outside aren't going, oh, I'd like to be a human resources officer or a compliance officer or a consumer marketer when I grow up. And I, absolutely agree with you that the framing is a big part of it. And, and that especially with HR, like what are, what are we looking to do in human resources? We're looking to develop people and help them shine, right? It's a beautiful thing that the ideal of what that function is, is one of the coolest things. And even just, this is, leadership. This is the study and practice and training of leadership. And there's also recruiting and some other things, but everyone likes the idea of leadership development. Mm -hmm. There's nothing weird or bad about that, but like HR, like, oh, um, even, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel so deeply that struggle that you're talking about with compliance. And I just hadn't thought about it before until I was listening to some of your podcasts. And I saw the rebranding that you did with your organization, which made so much sense. You've probably talked about it on the podcast. No, this is the first one since the rebrand. Oh, that's so cool. So can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, thanks for asking. So I think, you know, our old name was almost as if like McDonald's was called Big Mac. So our, our, you know, we have a software suite that goes well beyond, you know, a particular sort of offering. And um, I think it was a very limiting name. And it also didn't really help us, um, like, let me say it this way. There are, are a bunch of groups within an organization that are not compliance who benefit who have found us and benefit from the solutions that we provide. But there's an equal and probably exponentially higher number of people who would never even consider us if they didn't, you know, find us or, you know, get recommended or, you know, somebody recommended us to them by just that name. Because, you know, I always say that like HR and compliance are kind of like twins, you know, almost identical twins in that share a bedroom that have a tape down the middle where it's like, I'm not that person and I'm not the other person. It's like, well, yeah, you're not, you have, di- you know, you're different, you know, beings for sure. But we solve a lot of the same problems, right? We want to make our workplaces better. We want to, uh, provide, you know, look, Regardless of the moniker that HR gets or regardless of, of the, uh, or I'm sorry, the reputation HR gets or the reputation that, you know, um, compliance gets, it's full of people that are going into these roles to make a difference. And many times they get chewed up and spit out by them or they get jaded or they get calloused by them. But regardless, the heart of those people are ones that want to make, you know, increase diversity and increase inclusivity and, you know, create workplaces that actually live out these values that are espoused in the brochures and on the commercials and in the, the codes of conduct. So by changing our name and, you know, trying to reframe this ethics or this compliance thing to an ethics thing, I think it broadens our reach a bit 
to uh, for us to be considered to you know different you know constituent groups or different departments within an organization, and also helps to try you know maybe this is uh, a little aspirational, but tries to unify the the common vein that runs through a lot of these functions, which is really putting ethics at the forefront of our organizations. Because I mean, look look at all the data. Like, why are people quitting? Why are people leaving organizations? It's because they don't believe in the mission of the company, or they don't they they don't believe that the company is actually pursuing the stated mission. They don't believe that the values of, of the organization are authentic. They don't believe that they have a sense of you know they don't feel like they have a sense of belonging to, you know, within that company. And that causes a lack of engagement that causes a bunch of these sort of negative externalities that every business, every CEO, every board, every uh, employee wants to avoid. And so um, that was kind of the impetus behind it to kind of broaden our reach and become a little bit, um, you know, simplify. Also, I couldn't freaking type the name in my phone. So compliance <laughs> line was like a 15 letters or something. Uh, yeah. So say, say the old name and the new name. Yeah. The old name was compliance line and the new name is Ethico. It just sounds so different totally. to listen to and hear compliance line. I feel so much resistance come up right. when I hear that. And then hearing Ethico, like that's just pure positive juice. Uh, thank you for saying that. I, th you know, I mean, think of compliance, bad word. A <laughs> line is like a rope. It's like constricting. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, we had been thinking about it for a long time. And my brother, who's a, ge a real genius, he, uh, he was like, what about this name? And like, it was really like, um, if you've ever like looked for a house or an apartment, or for me, when I've looked for a house or an apartment, I see one, and I'm like, yeah, that could work. That could work. And then you step into one and you're like, this is it. You just know it immediately. Uh, that's how it felt with this name. I love that. That's that's how it should feel when you get to the right name. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's so funny how that um how that that feel, I mean, you know, you you talk in your book about the system 1 and the system 2 and it's weird how we as humans, this is, you know, what I've seen, we think that we're just these like sort of logical beings and the feelings are over here and we sort of take in these ones and zeros and we spit out a ticker tape with the most, you know, logical answer. And it's like the absolute opposite of that. And it's funny how that reframe, it's funny how powerful that reframe is. Changing it from conflict or whatever situation to invasion, it just evokes so much more. And it's just like, I don't know how it all works, but it's such a powerful thing if we can, if we can sort of pluck those emotional strings or just have some you know, more intentionality behind the words we use to frame things. Right. And, and it's, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to, dig deep into this topic of framing because it's one of the influence strategies that I'm very passionate about mm -hmm. because because of that investment and payoff like we're talking about. And for anyone who's possibly interested in the book, first of all, framing is just one chapter out of um, nine and three quarters chapters and a bunch I of little half chapters I in between. That, by the way. Um, and, and if you do end up getting this book or getting it from your library, there are a list of specific words that can help you get the framing juices flowing when you're trying to name something. And I share three particular types of frames that really hook visceral attention very effectively and can be used in really almost any situation. So the possibilities for framing are infinite, but the practicality of applying it, this just gives you a little place to start. So let's talk about those three, because I, I, I just think framing is like perhaps the most underused tool in persuasion in terms of like how easy it is to get going on it and start playing with it. 
Right. I completely agree. And we are always framing whether we know it or not. We're just not doing what we mean to. Like you were talking about with compliance line, you were framing unintentionally the thing that you didn't mean to (laughs) framing. Right. That feeling of like, ooh, I definitely don't think I should be part of this. (laughs) Um, The three most powerful frames are monumental frames and manageable frames and mysterious frames. So a monumental frame is telling that person's unconscious or subconscious mind, this is really, really important and you should definitely pay attention. So something like war or invasion is a monumental frame. Mm -hmm. The manageable kind of frame is telling, again, the subconscious mind, hey, this is going to be easy. It's not going to take a lot of effort. And so it's diffusing resistance. Mm -hmm. Then the third type, the mysterious frame is saying you don't know exactly what to expect. So this is worth paying attention to. And ethical would be more along the lines of a mysterious frame, because we get an idea of the like, it's probably going to be something kind of good. But I don't know exactly what it means. And it's also not actually a word, but it's interesting and makes, at least for me, it makes me feel curious. So that's what a mysterious frame does is it sparks curiosity. Um, so I love those three types. And, you know, what? I, so for somebody listening who doesn't do a lot of framing, you know, and you tell me what you think um, here, Zoe, but... I think you can get started by just doing that like explicitly by saying like, this is going to be easy or you might, you know, maybe this is like the objection audit, you know, the Chris Voss objection audit type of thing. Um, But to just really kind of pull forward what you think they might be feeling to help them get to the feeling that you want them to have after you deliver whatever it is you, you, you deliver. I think in my industry, what I see a lot of people not doing is thinking about the emotional path that somebody is likely going to follow as they receive whatever information they're receiving. We do a lot of work on like ROI uh, enhancements for, for folks because all that is is like a persuasion game. It's, you know, if I'm asking for a budget from you, my CEO, I need to, get, you know, get you comfortable with get telling me yes, that you will give me the money that I want. That's just a persuasion path. That's just a path of influence. And what I find is that a lot of folks either don't feel like they have the dexterity to like walk through that using, you know, whatever, call it Aristotle's, uh, you know, rhetorical triangle, pulling from these different sort of aspects, um, or even just feeling like it's possible to like vision cast through what that emotional path is going to look like. And I just think if you think someone's going to be resistant, then that manageable framing is going to be the one to go to. What do you think about just being super explicit about it? And how does that change the efficacy of the ultimate frame? The... The resistance that they have could take different forms, right? It might not be about specifically that it's difficult, but if that is where the resistance would come from, which is the case a lot when we're trying to persuade somebody to change something that they're doing, that is often the biggest problem that it's going to be a pain to do that. And so just letting them know this is actually going to be way easier than you think. Yes, you don't have to use fancy words. You can just say that it's going to be easy. Something like the mystery hook. You can't just say, this is going to be really mysterious. Totally. Right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> but but 
you could ask them a question or leave something unanswered. There are many different ways to spark curiosity. And, and with the monumental piece of it, if you tell someone, this is the most important thing I'm going to say, they will pay attention. You don't need fancy words. Right. So there are many different kinds of words that you can use, many ways to let the other person know this is easier, this is important, or you don't know what's coming next. Um, and what I'll, I'll share, so with people who are trying to think in their minds about what could this actually look like, you don't need to use more than one frame when you're talking about something. Um, analogies are frames, right? Like, right. like Nick used the frame of saying that HR and compliance are like kids sharing a bedroom with a tape line down the middle and you visually, viscerally imagine this and you completely get it. So this is a very helpful, effective frame. What this example that I love is, um, from a book on the most boring imaginable topic of house cleaning. Nobody wants to read a book about house cleaning, but when Marie Kondo writes a book about house cleaning, she uses all of these three frames together and calls it the life-changing magic of tidying up. So life-changing is monumental, magic is mysterious, and tidying up is manageable. It's easy. She's not telling you that if you do this, you're going to have to reorganize your house. It's going to take you weeks to do it. And then you're going to have to keep doing it on a recurring basis. Um, you kind of got all three in your title too. Uh, influence is your superpower. I think superpower is kind of monumental, kind of mysterious. And if it already is yours, maybe mm-hmm. it's manageable. Yep. That's so funny. I didn't really think about it. <laughs> See, you just you're just so persuasive. You're such a you're so good at influence. It just it just comes out everywhere. <laughs> it comes out everywhere. Um, That's funny. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, f- first of all, or fifth of all, uh, congratulations on having such a cool course at such a great school. What was that like getting to that point? Because you can so you know you kind of skip, skipped over a lot of like massive uh, you know summits that you climbed on this mountain that um, this mountain of success that you're you know toward the top of. Um, how did you decide to end up becoming a teacher or to becoming a professor? And how how did you know that this was it? Like this was the area that you wanted to really dig deep on. And then how did how were you able to build this class to um, you know the popularity that it is now? I came to graduate school doing a PhD. So, so the, a key piece there was getting a PhD at Harvard and doing research that was viewed by the faculty at Yale of being worthy of me joining the faculty here. Yeah. And, and that, you know, what does it take to get into Harvard? And like, you know, you have to have crazy test scores. And I'd actually managed a little test prep business, helping people study for standardized tests and oh, cool. um, lots of these pieces. But I loved teaching and I had taught for, I don't know, between five and 10 years before coming back to grad school, before even getting an MBA. I taught high school theater. I taught software classes. I taught English as a foreign language. I loved teaching. And then I went into the research world, focused on research, and then 
joining the faculty, what I was supposed to do is spend all of my time on research and just like whatever little shreds of time on teaching I had to. But I was really excited about the teaching part. Yeah. And so when they said, hey, would you like to teach a class on consumer behavior and, and a class on nonprofit marketing? They were being nice because this is relevant to my background and the research that I was mm-hmm. doing on philanthropy and volunteering and things like that. And I said, actually, what I'd really like to do is I would like to invent the course that I wish that I could have taken as an MBA student. Wow. And so I picked a monumental frame and called it Mastering Influence and Persuasion. And my big negotiation when I was offered the job at Yale was to say, um, it was so small, but big to me, but so small that other people would just not even think of it. I said, can you waive the course enrollment minimums for the first year when I teach this class so that by the second year, it will be popular enough that I can fill up all, my, all the sections that I owe and I never have to teach another different class? And the dean was like, really? Seriously? That's what you want? Okay, fine. No problem. So that was I'll an easy your- ask. It was a very easy ask. Right. Why yeah. Why was he so, so surprised that that was your ask? Do you think? I don't think anyone had ever asked for it. And something that I talk with my students about a lot, because many of them are getting job offers and negotiating them, is thinking about outside of the box, what could make you happier, more successful at work, in life? What are other things that could be on the table, but they're not yet? And I did ask for more money, and I did get a bit more money for salary and research budget. Um, But this was the main thing that I cared about because I knew that if I had to prep multiple classes, then this would be not just a mountain of work, but less pleasurable than putting everything into this one class. So I teach four sections of this one class. And honestly, it was standing room only since the first day because of the title of it. (laughs) It's all titling, isn't it? The frame was really good. Um, So a couple of things that have happened, just examples from the class. One that I write about in the book is we play this game called the bigger and better game where you start with a paperclip, trade up for something bigger and better and better, bigger and better. Had a couple of students just before the pandemic who traded up from Monday to Thursday, 10 trades with business owners in our town from a paperclip to a car, a Volkswagen Jetta from a car dealership. And then they donated it to a refugee family from Afghanistan. The mom had been commuting two hours a day on the bus. So it was thinking big, having lots of fun. They went around town in these fuzzy animal onesies, just inviting people to be part of this fun game. And people, lots of people were excited to. This year in the Bigger and Better game, one of the students traded up to a tattoo of a paperclip and he wow. now has this How cool big tattoo on his rib cage and I, I saw it and was like oh my god I hope you're not going to regret this Jake um, but he's super cool and he's a really fun guy and he will definitely remember the lessons of this class and yeah, he's very real. influential well and also recognize um, you know I mean as trite as it sounds like if you can believe it you can achieve it <laughs> you know what I'm saying got a car from a paperclip that's wild it's crazy, right? It and crazy. a professor at an agriculture school in California emailed me when he read about the paperclip challenge. I write about it in the book. And he said, you know, what materials to use? What do I need to watch out for? So I gave him some advice. And then he reached out a few weeks later, having had his students play the paperclip game. And their big win was someone had traded up from a paperclip to a horse named <laughs> Dum Dum. <laughs> Amazing. That is so funny. So influence is magic. And that's why I get really excited about it. 
It's so and by great. the way, go ahead. Yeah. If I could just share, um, for anyone who's thinking about reading the book or sharing it with their team, I'm donating half of my profits from this book to 350.org and other groups that are working on the climate crisis. Oh, very because cool. I believe very strongly in the Spider-Man doctrine that with great power comes great responsibility. And so whatever power you have, whatever power I have, I believe that it's our responsibility to use it to do important good things. I love that. That's, uh, that's great. I love when people really... Um put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Do you have time for like one or two more questions? Sure thing. So um, you said something interesting. Um, well, you said a lot of interesting, frankly. Uh, but you said something interesting earlier where you said, uh, where, you, where you were talking about your friend, um, I forget his name. Uh, Zil- Taras? Yeah, Taras. So you said that he was already very influential and so forth. Do you find that your class, uh, do you find that it's people that who's attracted most to it? Is it people that are already like influence and persuasion nerds that just like, just want to nerd out on it more? Or is it people who are like, man, I really stink at persuasion and it's something that I know I need to get better at. And who do you think it impacts more? I'm really lucky that I get to work with all of those people. So I teach this seven week boot camp class at Yale and then my next job negotiation was stepping off the tenure track in 2019 to go half time here at Yale. And the rest of the time I get to do whatever I want all over the world, spreading the gospel of good influence. Cool. So I work with, with students and clients and workshop participants and advisory clients in roles from college students to CEOs and beyond, including central bankers and one time a princess. Wow. And I, I love working with people who are at the beginning of their career and just figuring it out or people who are introverted or people who, like me, feel like outsiders and they want to be more influential. They're they're committed to working hard to do good things, but they're missing this piece of it. And I love working with people who are already tremendously successful and influential. And what I can do for them is give them very concrete tactical insights and tools that they can then share with the people that they're trying to influence. And I'll do things with, well, I'll, I'll, I was thinking, especially with leaders who already have a lot of success, but in fact, my MBA students have to do this too, where I believe that the next step of leadership after organizational leadership is thought leadership, not just for people that we call thought leaders, but for all of us to be putting our voices out there into the public sphere to influence the issues in the world that we care about. We can all do a lot more of it. I'm an ambassador with the op-ed project and I train people with them and on my own to be, to become a public voice. And it's kind of scary. Katie Ornstein, who runs the op-ed project has famously said, if you speak up, there will be consequences, but the alternative is to be inconsequential. Ooh. Isn't that powerful? Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good one. Well, because so much, you know, and it resonates deep with me for a lot of reasons. One of which is that the business we're in is trying to get workplaces to have a higher level of like perceived and hopefully actual integrity that people feel comfortable speaking up about what their concerns are without fear of retaliation, without fear of consequences and so forth. But what a powerful, powerful quote. And, you know, you, you said this a couple of times, you know, this, this agency thing, we all have the ability to grab the steering wheel of our lives. 
um, and in knowledge work and in the economy that you know most all of us exist in, the means by which we navigate through everything is really you know influence and persuasion. I was at an investor meeting recently. It was like a conference, you know, and uh, somebody asked us, you know, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in running a business? And you know, we were kind of having that discussion, and my answer was like, it's just all persuasion. It's everything is all persuasion. It's getting, setting a vision. It's getting people to do that thing. Uh, we can't do that with like, uh, you know, this is not like a work camp. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> people aren't like forced to do anything. You just have to like persuade everyone to do everything. You got to persuade yeah. people to buy it. You have to persuade people to buy into your mission. And um, it really is such a superpower. And I guess my last question, because I would really like to just take your entire day, but I'm going to be a little, a little, uh, respectful of your time. Um, why, how do we lose it? I mean, you gave that example early in the book of like, you're super persuasive when you're a baby, you're crying, you get milk, uh, when you're a kid, you're, I mean, my dad always says like, you sure don't have to teach kids how to sell. Like kids know how to (laughs) sell. They are like the best salespeople ever. But at some point, what do you think it is that causes us to like lose that agency that you're helping so many people like pick back up and perfect and so forth? So with apologies to all parents and teachers, of which I am both, I believe it's our parents and teachers who train us to be compliant. They train us to be good, not take up too much space, not cause too much trouble, do good work, turn it in, and wait to get a reward, like a sticker. And we end up bringing that with us where most of us are nice people. So we don't want to cause trouble for people. And when we get trained to, here's how to not cause trouble trouble for people and have people maybe think good things of you, like, okay, great. And here's how to get rewarded. You get an A, you get a sticker, teacher smiles at you. We carry these to the world as an adult and the workplaces and the social structures that we're in. And that's just not how the world works because they didn't teach us persuasion. I actually have a lot of high school students who've read the book who have been so excited about it. And I've had a lot of adults giving the book to their high school age and even some younger children. I 100% agree with you, Nick, that the business of business is persuasion. There was this quote by Harry Truman that really struck me that when he became president, leader of the free world, and you'd think like, okay, people are resistant. You're not the boss of me. But like, if you're the president of the United States, you kind of are the boss of a lot of people. And he said... I sit here and spend all day trying to persuade people to do the things they ought to know to do already. That's all the powers of the president amount to. Wow. I mean, is that not, yeah, that's crazy. That's such a crazy frame. I mean, to your point, the king, the king of the world, essentially, (laughs) that's, that's what it all boils down to. It's really a fascinating thing. It's all persuasion and it's crazy that we don't teach it very much to people and that when we do, it tends to be in this weird sliver of transactional sales. Uh, My stepdad was a huge fan of Zig Ziglar too, by the way, and he was a very positive influence and I appreciated that perspective. Yeah. um, 
you know, the Zig Ziglar ethos is that you can get everything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And I think a lot of the influence that you're talking about is not this sort of this predatory, uh, transactional, like zero-sum game type influence, but it's really using it as a superpower to make the world better. And you're never going to drive change, uh, at least not with force, uh, without kind of ample, um, you know, influence transferable right. influence if you want to can i reflect something back before we end yeah that i think that listeners feel and is why they tune in and listen again besides your sweet shout out at the beginning but listeners you might not be consciously thinking about this when you're listening but nick makes the people he's talking to feel really good. I actually had somewhere that I needed to be at the beginning of the hour. But when you said, do you have a few more minutes? I'm like, yeah, of course I have a few more minutes for you. And I'm just going to call that person and apologize for being late. And that quality that you have of helping people feel good and helping other people shine is the best, most important piece of influence. And it's what you're demonstrating is what it sounds like to be someone that other people want to say yes to. Well, that is the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me on this podcast. So it feels like we should end it right there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Thank you for this Thank conversation. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Uh, I will email you after this. This was really phenomenal. Thank you so much for your work uh, in literally changing the world. You've changed uh, my day for sure and changed my perspective on a lot of things. Uh, pick up the book, um, Influence is Your Superpower. Uh, buy it on Amazon. Uh, half of the uh, proceeds go to uh, the 350 Project, I think it's called. And also come to the Ethics Verse because we, we're going to be giving this book away like hotcakes. So thank you so much, Zoe. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you all next time.